This is our uh, this is our first podcast of 2022. Hang on a second, Gordon. Um, but yeah, yeah, first first podcast of 2022. Everybody have a happy new year. Yeah, it was good. Um, you reach a certain age, you don't um, you don't really uh, celebrate New Year like you once did. Um, I know maybe some people go out and celebrate or stay up till midnight every time, but uh, I gotta say this was the first time that I celebrated the New Year's while watching Golden Girls. So yeah, maybe it might not be the last time because it was right after the news of Betty White and I hadn't seen Golden Girls in what, you know, since probably since the 90s. I never went back and rewatched any of it. And uh, but I always remembered that when I watched it back in the 90s, um, you know, I was young and I didn't think I I think I never actually sat down and watched it myself. It was always just on and I happened to be in the room or whatever. But I remember thinking back then that even as a teen, that this was pretty good writing. This was pretty funny stuff. And sometimes it was even a little edgy. And so I kind of, I wasn't doing it to honor the great Betty White, but I was doing it because her death, you know, maybe rethink the show and thought, I think I'm going to go back and and revisit it and see, uh, if what I remember is great and why, you know, so many people uh, swear by the show and even 30 years later, it's the greatest thing in the world. And I got to say through eight episodes, I give it an A plus. It is, um, it's just some of the plots are a little bit hokey, but I guess all sitcoms were back then. But the, the one-liners, I, I kind of liken it to Cheers where, Cheers was great all around, the acting and the plots and everything, but what really made Cheers great to me was just the constant barrage of one-liners and and uh, and really witty jokes, and I think Golden Girls has that as well. So I give it an A+, plus and, you know, I might watch some more of it, but it's still a sad way to, to bring in the new year. And yeah. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Jordan and I had been watching Golden Girls already, and... Um... It's it's like totally hilarious, and I'm I'm the same as you. I remember it being funny when I was a kid, but watching it as an adult for the first time, I'm I'm laughing out loud at every episode. We we weren't watching that as 2022 rang in. I was awake. My wife was not. I was on the couch probably by 9:30, and I think that that's probably a, a permanent state of things for New Year's to come. Did you make it to midnight, Richard? Just... Oh no, no, I haven't made it. I haven't made it to midnight probably in twenty years. But we uh, decided we were going to stay up late this time, and uh, so we we prepared to to do that. We had you know some snacks made and uh, those kind of things, and we sat on the couch and thought, okay, how much longer is it? And we looked at the clock, and it was nine o'clock. And I just thought, I can't make this. So uh, we watched a couple episodes of the Big Bang Theory and away we went. And yeah. I got to say, we've been watching the Big Bang Theory now. Uh, we started not long after we were married. We, we've been married uh, 
on the 17th of this month, we'll be married for one whole year now. And so oh, wow. uh, uh, we started not long after that, we started watching the Big Bang Theory and we just finished all 297 episodes or maybe 279 episodes, 279 episodes of that show. So that's kind of how we, how we rolled on, on New Year's Eve. And I woke up the next morning and you know what? It was a new year. I didn't miss a thing. Yeah. It's a commitment. 279 episodes. That's a a commitment. That's a big chunk of my life right there. You know, that's 140 some hours of my life. (laughs) I never get back. Well, listeners um, may remember Richard as a guest from uh, a couple of episodes back. Richard Sullins has been doing government reporting for us, local government. Um, And we had so much fun with Richard that he will be joining us a lot more frequently to talk about his work and uh, whatever else it is that comes up on this on this podcast. Um, And Richard, you sent me a story last night, which I got posted to the web this morning. Uh, first thing about the um, the county commissioners meeting, and it sounds like they got some pretty uh, sobering um, updates about the the current state of COVID. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit more about that story? Yeah, I mean the numbers were really just uh, you know they were just about as jaw dropping as you can imagine uh, because they were. Um, you know, they were just stunning. And then the commissioners were stunned by them as they sat there and listened to them. Uh, yesterday, the county had 27 employees out of work either because they'd come down with COVID or they, you know, were quarantined because they'd been exposed to it. Sanford, the city of Sanford, had 31 employees out of work yesterday. And earlier yesterday, I think those of us who live in the city got an email telling us that our trash and recycling collection firm uh, had more than 20 of its workers because yeah. of uh, uh, they had uh, issues with COVID as well. Um, more than 600 cases of COVID were reported over the weekend. That's just this incredible. Is, yeah, th- this is the number that stuns me from your story. It said uh, the county got its 10,000th case on December 22nd. We're already up to eleven thousand five hundred since then. So yeah. at this pace, we're going to pace. We're going to hit twenty thousand by May. Yeah, uh, and that's you know that's not that far out of uh, you know out of the ballpark because thirty four percent of the cases that have you know of the tests that have been run over the last seven days have been uh, returned as positive results and. Um, I talked with my doctor this morning and uh, she was telling me that she is just overrun with people that have this. And, um, you know, it's, it's no surprise to anybody or shouldn't be any surprise to anybody that, you know, 90 to 95% of the folks that uh, are, are going down with this uh, are unvaccinated people. And that's just, uh, you know, a circumstance that just really shouldn't have to happen. Uh, because if, if you know, even though this strain of the virus doesn't seem to be as bad as um, some of the previous iterations of it, you know, it, it could be a lot less than what it is if people would just go ahead and get vaccinated with it. And um, it's difficult to get, but, uh, you know, it's, um, 
it's a strange circumstance that we find ourselves in, and yet here we are. I yeah. saw a uh, someone shared something on Twitter that was a uh, it was a GIF of uh, Mario from Super Mario Brothers going through what looked like the most um, insane level ever of just fireballs coming in everywhere. And the caption was, this is how people who have not gotten COVID-19 feel at, at this point. And I think um, I'm being one of them. I, I've never, I've never gotten COVID. Uh, I feel like I'm in the, in the minority now. And I feel like it's, it's almost, it's a weird feeling that it's almost, it's just like a matter of time. That's a very negative feeling to have because you don't, nobody wants to get sick. And if you have the attitude of, well, I guess I'm gonna, then, you know, there, there goes positive thinking out the door. But for me, it's just a matter of when and not if, and uh, that's not, that's, that's not a good feeling to have right now. That's why we have the vaccines and the booster. Well, I had it. Why so. I elected to get them. Well, yeah. For, well, not, and yeah, and I'm vaccinated and I'm boosted, but, uh, but it's still almost, and I know it's less of a crapshoot, but it's still a crapshoot whether it's going to, even if you are vaccinated and boosted, whether you're still going to get sick or not. And and no, I'm not worried about, you know, you just shared the 90, 95%. I'm not worried about, you know, um, my demise from it, but uh, I am worried about getting it. I'm worried about my kids getting it. I'm worried about, you know, I have unvaccinated family members, a couple that live here in Sanford. It's it's just, you know, we also kind of thought we were through this, and my doorbell's ringing. Uh, it's UPS, never mind. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know where I was, what I was saying, but it, no, it's just it's kind of a it's gone from hey, I've got this, I'm in control, I, I mask up, I'm vaccinated, to almost kind of a feeling of helplessness to where, yeah, I guess I'm gonna get it. It's just a matter of when and and what it's gonna do to me. Yeah, those, maybe that's a bad attitude to have, but yeah. those those numbers, though, I mean, I, we're pushing 12,000 cases in a county of 62,000 people. I mean, that's uh, what we're closing in on 20 percent. I'm bad at math, <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, of a population that when this thing started, it was, well, you got to you know, you, you've got a very low chance of even getting it. And I, I don't think that's borne out exactly. Yeah. Well, eight like, weeks ago, uh, the, the number of tests or percentage of tests that were coming back positive was 3.13%. Yesterday, the percentage of tests that were coming back positive was 34%. Yeah. So that's more, that's one out of every three. So, you know, your chance of being exposed to it are, are, uh, much higher now than they were just eight weeks ago. Um, so, uh, you know, I had to think twice about going to the county commission meeting last night uh, because it was in a small room and there was a large crowd expected. So um, I had it. Uh, I had one of the first cases of it in oh, North wow. Carolina. I, I was living in Wake County two years ago and um, I went to vote, uh, do early voting on the last day of it, and I got exposed to a poll worker. Uh, who had contracted it and was asymptomatic at the time. And uh, about four or five days later, I was not asymptomatic. I was really sick. And uh, the county actually called me, uh, the Wake County Health Department called me and asked if I was having any issues. And um, I was so sick, I couldn't come to the phone, really. And um, so um, 
um, I, and there was no, at that time there was no treatment. There was there was no uh, antibody treatments, you know, no MMAs or anything like that that could be done. You just had to wear it out. And um, I was I was sick, really bad sick, for about two months. And then I had fatigue that came along with that for about four to five months. And uh, you know, when you you if you talk to somebody who's actually had it. And they tell you how sick they got with it, and then you still don't get vaccinated. Um, it's a it's a great mystery to me why some people, you know, won't do that. I, I was talking to somebody not long ago, and he was telling me that you know, well, I'm I'm taking vitamins and all sorts of nutritional supplements, and you know, I haven't had it. I talked my grandchildren into doing the same thing and they're in school and they're unmasked, you know, when they don't have to be and all those kinds of things. And I thought, wow, man, you're, you're playing with fire. Um, but you know, that's, that's the way a lot of people see it. And of course they have the right to, to, to do it that way, but, um, um, it, it's just a strange circumstance. Right. Well, you, you've got a, another important meeting, coming up tonight on, on the same topic, the school board's right. going to meet and, and revisit their, um, their masking policy, but based on the own, their own criteria that they set, it seems highly unlikely that there'll be any change in the policy at this time. Is that right? It'll be the same thing that they've, they've done for the last, uh, six months or so. They started this, uh, policy of requiring face coverings for, students and faculty and staff and visitors on August the 2nd. And it's been in place since then. Um, and at every school board meeting since that time, there are a number of folks who show up and they talk about, uh, uh, they, they uh, bring out their own studies uh, that show that, you know, that it's harmful and it doesn't have any effects and those kinds of things. And, um, but, you know, the school board really doesn't have a lot of leeway on this with the numbers being what they are. So I don't anticipate this evening that the, the school board will, will do anything differently than, than what it is, you know, it's been doing for the last few months. It's in fact, it actually kind of has to stick with what it is because, uh, you know, here we are in January. This is the, uh, I hope this is the height of, of the pandemic of what's going on. But I don't see really that they have a lot of room to do anything other than continue what they have been doing for a while. Well, Richard, it's you're still probably going to have the public speakers and the and the uh, um, and the school board members who are going to um, still fight this, and um, and that and that's what still baffles me is we're two years into this and um, it's not getting any better, and yet. Yet there's still a an odd political play here that uh, that unmasking our students is somehow going to allow things to get back to normal. And I, I just uh, I don't see it. I wish more people were as adamant about the masking and speaking in public as those who are as adamant against it that speak. I would like to see more more of the sane variety of public speakers than I would the. Uh, the uh, I'll go ahead and say insane ones that are speaking, but um, I'm allowed to say that I don't go to these meetings. So, well, it's funny uh, because we uh, 
back in August. It wasn't long after the they uh, put the mandate in place that uh, it was made clear also that board members were expected to, to mask during their meetings because, you know, they needed to set the example for everybody else. And there were three or four board members who were showing up and weren't doing that. So uh, in one story, I named who they were. And then at the very next meeting, everybody shows up wearing a mask. And uh, so, you know, some good comes out of it, I suppose. But I've noticed in the last couple of meetings, a few, we've had a couple of backsliders, I think, you know, since then. But uh, but uh, if we've been able to to uh, uh, cause them to pay attention to their own mandate, you know, at least some, a couple of them are reading you. Know, so, uh, so that's always good to know that uh, public officials take note of what it is that we write. So. Right. The, the power of uh, the power of journalism to affect change. You'll you'll be happy to know, Richard. Uh, within minutes of your story going up, there was a comment on the website that said, um, "At this point, it's just a cold, and we should get over it." Which I don't know if that's directed at at us, the rant for writing the story and and accurately depicting what happened at a meeting, or if it's you know if it's a message to the 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 the, the county officials who are discussing this at the meeting. I think it's a message to. I think it's a message to scientists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, from I also just, got a, a from just comment. saying in Sanford, North Carolina. I, I I got comment. Well, I can tell you from the faces. I can tell you from the faces on the the uh, the four members of the county commission who were at the, the meeting last night that they don't think it's a cold, right? Uh, because they were uh, they were as silent and as sullen uh, as any time I've ever seen them. They were shocked. They were um, just, uh, I think I used the word stunned by the number of just the sheer numbers of that were being reported last night by Dr. Crumpton, the county manager. Uh, it was the numbers were just overwhelming. They were just so large. Um, so, you know, for somebody to suggest it's, you know, just a cold is, you know, somebody who's living in fantasy land. Well, so what? What are the, uh, but, the, yeah, the six hundred cases over the weekend in a county of sixty some thousand people? What did one percent of the county test positive? You know, well, so, yeah, that would be that'd yeah. be a right percentage, yeah. Over the weekend, wow. Well, speaking of comments, I did a story about um, a couple of inmates at the jail being found in possession of heroin, allegedly. I should say, you know, because this has not gone to court yet, but. Um, in the headline, I referred to them as jail inmates or, or jail residents because I wanted to use a different word than inmates, which I use in the lead. You try to use a variety of words when so you're not repeating the same thing. But I got some pushback for saying jail residents. Um, I'm told that this was akin to saying undocumented citizens or or some other quote unquote typical liberal reporting. But I went to the um, the county's website and clicked on the sheriff the sheriff's office page. Um, and that page still indicates the, the, the office is held by Tracy Carter, who, you know, obviously resigned as of December 1st, um, the sheriff's now Brian Estes, but the point is that the, um, the sheriff's office website, when you click the, uh, to see who the inmates are at the jail, it says Lee County jail residents. So I don't know if they're, you know, the, the sheriff's office is also, liberal <laughs> using that terminology but I, I have, we always get some fun comments don't we i have two things 
I have two things to add to this. One, you'll be shocked to know that the same person that bagged on you for calling them residents is the same person that commented that it's just a cold, get over it. Um, number two, I had to do a story for uh, Campbell University on their um, prison inmate education program. And I too was at a point in time where I had to decide I need more words for inmates. And uh, it turns out there's a lot of them, but one, um, one that, uh, that I liked because it, it also um, accurately describes them is incarcerated individuals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I use that one a lot. I did not use residents, though. I, uh, although jail residents sounds sounds more um, more like a an actual phrase than prison residents. Right. <laughs> so well, I was thinking about from it. Jail to prison, you're you're no longer a resident. <laughs> I got I, after seeing these comments, I got to thinking about the nature of language, and I'm surprised that I haven't gotten pushback from the left on that because. Jail resident is probably more of a term that would um, kind of wash away some of the implications of being jailed. Typically, um, almost universally, I would argue that, you know, calling them a resident um, isn't quite accurate because they don't want to be there. Usually you're a resident of something by choice. Um, you know, yeah, an incarcerated individual sure. might be better. I'm not saying I necessarily... Uh, think that using the term jail residence is is the end of the world. But if you're going to be a stickler for language, I'm surprised that I haven't gotten pushback from the left on that. So if anybody's out there listening, feel free to slam me in the It would be really hard to work into a song, too, you know? <laughs> Can you imagine Elvis Presley singing, you know, the warden threw a party in the county jail, the <laughs> prison or jail residence there, they began to wail? Yeah. That'd, that'd be kind of tough. Yes, it would. Yeah, that's a great uh, point. It doesn't make for a good list. Yes, there's some logic to that. Yeah. Yeah. But our guest this week is Jimmy Randolph, who is uh, CEO of the Sanford Area Growth Alliance. And, and usually when Jimmy is on the podcast, we talk about all kinds of good economic development news, of which there's been a lot. But uh, this week, Jimmy is joining us for another purpose. Uh, Jimmy and some others are reviving or rebooting or however you want to say it. I'll let you uh, make that characterization. But the old Sanford Pottery Festival, it's coming back uh, the final weekend of April, first weekend of May. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, we're aiming for the the spot that uh, that had some success in the past uh, for that event, uh, Gordon, the, uh, the weekend before Mother's Day. Um, mm -hmm. So a first uh, on Sunday would be the, the Sunday before Mother's Day. Uh, Saturday will be the last day of April. So April 30th and May 1st. We're also working um, on plans for an event on Friday night that will have uh, elements of pottery associated with it um, and also uh, focus on downtown. So uh, the uh, Downtown Sanford um, Inc., the uh, Sanford TDA, Visit Sanford NC, um, uh, and the North Carolina Pottery Center are partnering with us in this event, and uh, we are still very much um, in, the, in the developmental stages in terms of what the final agenda will look like, but for sure we'll have some sort of a Friday evening event likely to involve music and uh, good food, 
and hopefully interacting with the uh, exhibitors for the event, both the contemporary potters and the historians that are going to be associated with the event, and then the, um, the, the marketplace and the exhibition will take place at the Civic Center on Saturday and Sunday. So tell me what this event is called. I got your uh, Facebook invite to like the event, and it is not called Sanford Pottery Festival. It has a different name. So tell me about that and, and um, you know, why you chose that name. Uh, the Sanford Pottery Exhibition and Marketplace. Uh, this really is uh, designed to be a celebration of Sanford's pottery heritage. And um, as such, we're planning a significant educational component for it, Gordon, the, um, not just in terms of the techniques associated with glazing and decorating and forming uh, handcrafted pottery, but um, on the authentic pottery heritage that we have here in Sanford and Lee County. And so um, we're working with the North Carolina Pottery Center and um, a gentleman named Steve Compton, who has written several uh, volumes of, um, of scholarly work on the history of pottery in North Carolina. Um, and, and, and Sanford features prominently in the, the Seagrove area or the Seagrove region of that tradition of traditional North Carolina pottery. So we're going to have a um, exhibit of North State pottery and many of your, your listeners will already be familiar with North State. Many of them may have North State wares in their, um, in their house today mm -hmm. um, that they may have purchased themselves from North State back in the day. Although um, North State operated in Sanford from 1924 until 1959. So the folks that would have shopped in person <laughs> at North State and uh, secured their wares directly from the, the purveyors at North State uh, maybe relatively few in number these days, right. but I have a lot of North State pottery in my house um, that I've picked up over the years um, on the secondary market. Um, so we will feature an exhibit of North State pottery. North State was the first what you might call um, modern pottery or American art pottery, North Carolina art pottery manufacturer in Sanford, and they were established in 1924. So with this year's event, we're looking to sort of look back to the beginnings of what is a very rich pottery heritage here in Sanford and put a real clear focus on the people that were involved with that pottery, the business that was North State Pottery Company, um, and all the different ways that that company impacted the community in a positive way as a major manufacturer here in Sanford. Um, in future years, we'll look to focus on some of the other potteries, Rainbow Pottery, AR Cole Pottery, um, that folks will be very familiar with as well. But this year, the focus is going to be on North State Pottery. Excellent. Um, in, that, uh, in that venue on Saturday, we'll have uh, a stellar exhibit, probably the best exhibit ever assembled of North State Pottery in one place. Um, we will be borrowing heavily from the collection of the North Carolina Pottery Center and trying to educate our local folks about um, the important role that pottery manufacturing had in our economy um, for, uh, for decades, uh, here in Sanford and Lee County. So I was thinking this morning about the old pottery festival, and it has to have been at least eight, 10, 12 years since we had one of these. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but you know, a lot of people who may be listening are newer to Sanford than that. Can you talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the history of the old pottery festival and, and why it is now that you decided to, to bring this back? 
Absolutely. I think the um, the same principles that uh, that motivate us today to um, to emphasize that sort of authentic part of our heritage um, uh, around pottery making um, applied when the uh, the former pottery festival was established back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I was actually in place at the Chamber of Commerce during that time frame and was approached by um, members of the pottery making community about uh, potentially starting a festival or an event, a signature event uh, focused on that pottery heritage. At the time that we were having those conversations, we had a fairly new entrant into the local pottery manufacturing community at DK Clay. Uh, and then we also had um, Neola Cole and her grandson Kenneth and her sister Celia were still um, really in the prime of their operation at Cole's Pottery out in Northview. We also had a, a, a solid half dozen or so other potters. There was A.V. Smith in Broadway, North Cole Pottery, um, names that a lot of folks will remember um, from, from that time frame that were actively making pottery here in the community. And the goal of that event was to illuminate our authentic pottery heritage, um, to shed a spotlight on the existing potters that were active in the community at that time, and to encourage other potters to think about potentially making Sanford their home. Um, I think the idea was to generate um, awareness around pottery manufacturing and that Sanford had a significant place both historically and currently at that time in the pottery world and to um, encourage that, uh, that industry to grow and, uh, and, and continue to thrive here in, in Sanford and Lee County. Um, I think a number of economic factors conspired against that event over the years. It started out very successfully. Those who were involved with it may remember we had tens of thousands of people here for a weekend in that uh, first year's event, I believe it was in 2002. Um, the, uh, the Civic Center, the community college, uh, the downtown area uh, experienced just a, an amazing uh, turnout for that first festival. Um, ultimately, over the years, with the economic downturn in 08 and 09, um, it impacted both individual potters and events like our Pottery Festival uh, in a very significant way. And um, this community was a little slower to recover from the, uh, the Great Recession, if you will, than some others. And um, eventually, the momentum behind that event um, declined, and the uh, folks that were continuing to operate it each year um, eventually decided that they would just, um, you know, cease to cease to conduct the event. So, um, in looking back on that history, it's clear that that uh, the, the historical aspect of pottery making here is very significant, very interesting, um, and and potentially a big draw for the public. I was approached by the TDA leadership about potentially um, here at Saga creating a signature event in the spring uh, that, that would attract visitors to the community, potentially for overnight stays. And with my own personal experience as a pottery collector, uh, as a friend of some of those potters that were involved with the, with the previous events, um, it just seemed like a no-brainer to me that we should try to revive this event. And um, I think that we have... Uh, a tremendous amount of support in the community now for that. Uh, we're in a very different time economically. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in spite of the, you know, the, the, um, the ongoing, very significant impacts of COVID that we're experiencing right now, 
Um, we believe that by late spring, we'll be in a position to safely conduct an event of this magnitude at the Civic Center and um, hopefully uh, revive this event for the foreseeable future. Yeah, you you referenced where I was going next and that you said it's, you know, we're in different times economically, you know, so much has changed uh, locally as far as the economy and economic development and, and people coming in. Um, so what what are your expectations for for, you know, this? It's not the first event because it's sort of a, a reboot, but this, you know, the first event of the reboot. What are you what are your expectations? What are you looking to draw I think the um, the goal uh, that we've established in conversations with our partners at the TDA would be 5,000 um, folks to come to the event over a two-day period. My expectation, frankly, is that we may exceed that number significantly, um, just based on, uh, again, the, the current state of the economy as we're hopefully coming out of COVID. I think that's the big wild card, uh, both in terms of uh, attracting the, uh, the potters to the marketplace uh, to participate as vendors and in terms of having um, our, our target you know, audience show up uh, for the weekend of the event, um, I think the, uh, the, the next few weeks and maybe the next month or so will tell the tale in terms of um, whether COVID is going to continue to linger and be a, um, an impediment to our success or not. But our expectation is based on trends we've seen in other places and what we're hearing from the, the health experts that we're going to see, you know, essentially a blizzard of COVID continue uh, through the next few weeks, but potentially could see a peak uh, at the end of January into February. And that by the time late April and May rolls around, um, we'll be in a good position to host an event like this. So our expectations um, somewhat modest. Uh, I think, again, in the, in the best years of the, the previous festival of this type, um, they had between 10 and 20,000 visitors here for a week. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly think that's attainable again, um, but we're uh, trying to be realistic in our estimates and our planning, and um, we would love to see between five and 10,000 folks turn out. Again, the educational component will draw a certain market. Um, we hope that that will appeal to the local folks that are just interested in learning more about our pottery heritage and, and, um, and maybe their own place in it. Uh, we're going to have um, a number of interactive elements to the educational component. There'll be pottery demonstrations. There'll be pottery decorating uh, demonstrations, wheel turning. Um, there will also be a uh, antiques roadshow style pottery identification event okay. on days. So uh, you would have the opportunity to bring in your piece of, uh, you know, your family heirloom, if you will, uh, of, of handmade pottery and have experts examine that and talk to you about its origins and its value. Um, so we believe that's going to be a, a big draw. And then obviously it's going to be a marketplace and we're um, inviting the very best of our contemporary North Carolina potters to be a part of the event. And um, again, with the state of the economy today um, and hopefully a little bit of pent up demand still out there um, relative to the period we're coming out of, we expect that we'll have a, a very positive response for the marketplace as well. One thing uh, that I was thinking about um, today, 2022 versus say 2006 or 2010, whenever it might've been, is just the abundance we have of other things to keep people in Sanford when they're done with the event. 
Um, you know, whether that's breweries, restaurants, attractions, whatever it might be, there's a whole lot more of them today than there were back then. What kinds of things are you doing to coordinate um, with those businesses to to maybe, you know, attract some more dollars in, into, into Sanford and maybe downtown particularly? Gordon, that's a great point. And there's no question that we do have so much more to offer as a community um, both because of changes in the in the economy and just because of our continued investment, you know, in our downtown and uh, and and the uh, tremendous interest that downtown has seen from various businesses over the last decade, um, it is a very different uh, central business district now than it was during the time of the um, the other festivals that we had in the spring. So um, we are um, working right now with downtown Sanford Inc. and with the TDA to ensure that all of the businesses downtown are engaged. There's some real clear, obvious, uh, you know, um, opportunities with our uh, antique stores in downtown, Mm -hmm. uh, with the focus that we have on historic pottery and the fact that um, our antique establishments and even our thrift stores in downtown right now have um, a a pretty good stock of um, those types of items in their stores. But obviously the restaurants, the breweries, um, the, uh, the chocolate seller, you know, the businesses mm-hmm. like benefit, uh, from having an influx of visitors, um, in the numbers that we're thinking about and the experience that those visitors will have, I think is going to be greatly enhanced relative to what it, what it might've been in the past, just because we do have so many other offerings. Um, we're looking right now at, uh, at, at specific elements of our programming that would incentivize folks to go downtown, downtown. Um, and then also in our marketing efforts leading up to the event, we'll be um, doing an awful lot of promotion of our uh, various business uh, uh, districts around town and the um, and the uh, the the um, other events that are a part of the calendar for the community. Uh, not the least of which would be Strawberry Jamming, you know, which will be the weekend right after this. Um, we've, we've not only got a lot of, uh, establishments for, um, for visitors to, uh, to visit that didn't exist before, but we've got a lot of other events on the spring calendar, um, that we will use this, uh, this marketing push to help promote. So, uh, I I think you're absolutely right. I think the opportunity for a a much bigger economic impact, uh, much more widespread economic impact is there than we've ever had in the past with an event like this. Great. Well, Jimmy, I don't want to take uh, up too much more of your time. I know you're uh, a busy guy um, and I could probably bend your ear about economic development news, but maybe that's that's for another podcast. But um, I did want to give people an opportunity or give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find out more about the event. Um, I know there's a Facebook page. Is there a website? Is there anything else that people can can visit if they want to learn more? Absolutely. Sanford NC pottery.com uh, will have is our website we're adding content as we go right now the vendor application is available there uh, the dates of the event um, the beginning on Friday uh, April 29th through Sunday May 1st 2022 at the Dennis A. Wicker Civic Center um, we will be um, doing a tremendous amount of marketing between now and the date of the event um, you can also as you said check us out on Facebook the Sanford Pottery Exhibition and Marketplace. Um, We've begun to publish essentially blog posts, um, articles uh, about some of the um, 
most uh, compelling aspects of our pottery history uh, on Facebook. And we'll continue to do that on a regular basis from now all the way up through the event. We encourage folks to interact with that, to reach out to us. Um, you, can, uh, you can email us. That contact information is at the website. Um, you can reach out to us directly uh, here at Saga or at the TDA. Um, we'd be happy to answer questions you have specifically about the event. And then hopefully we will continue to, um, to uh, encourage interest in that historical aspect. Um, I did. Uh, I did have a little visual here. I'm gonna. I don't know how it'll come across on the screen, but um, you know, one of the one of the posts that we did this weekend was of a um, was of a a really early piece of Sanford, and um, this is a jug, a whiskey jug, probably. Is there any left? <laughs> by W. H. Hancock, um, back in uh, in Jonesboro, right here in the in 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 Sanford, um, probably around 1880. And uh, just really want to um, to take advantage of this opportunity to educate folks about our heritage as makers that goes back to the, our very earliest roots here in Sanford and Lee County and how that manifested itself in the form of pottery and how we were able to evolve and adapt over generations um, to make art pottery when the demand for whiskey jugs like this uh, went away. And, um, and then emphasize the opportunity that exists today from an entrepreneurial standpoint, from a craft and maker standpoint um, in our central business district and elsewhere in the community uh, for, for potters and other craftspeople and other makers to potentially make their Sanford, home, Sanford their home for the next generation. So we'll be talking more about that, Gordon, from an entrepreneurial standpoint uh, here at Saga as an economic development uh, focus. And uh, just really look forward to the opportunity to uh, to enjoy this event with everybody um, come come uh, come the end of April and um, and welcome input and uh, feedback from folks and any sort of questions people might have uh, in the interim. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the event itself. I'm looking forward to writing more about it. We haven't had a story yet, but that'll probably be changing in the next few days. Um, and I appreciate your time and. Uh, if there's more news about this, let us know. We certainly will, Gordon. Thank you so much. Well, what else is going on, guys? Um, Richard, you went over at a meeting recently all of the um, things that you've got coming up, but there are uh, there are quite a few uh, stories coming now that we're we're into January. Um, well, there, there's a lot going on this month, and there's some holdovers from last year that are still going to be with us. Uh, I think the redistricting story is the the one that just kind of keeps on giving. You know, it is just not going to go away anytime soon. And uh, you know, that story got picked up over the holidays by Mother Jones, by CNN, and was a front page story. On the New York Times, Commissioner Reeves' picture was right on the front page of the New York Times there in mid-December, and um, it's uh, still being talked about, and it's going to hang in there and, and going to be with us for a while. Um, I think that uh, the budgeting process for the county uh, got started last night when they approved the budget calendar for the year. That's an important document because it sets out the timetable. For the most important thing that the county does all year long, 
and that's decide where they're going to spend the money and who's going to get it. Right. And so that process is now underway. They'll start uh, toward the end of the month with the beginning of their uh, workshops and the, the county will have the county commissioners will have a weekend retreat. And uh, I don't know if refreshments are going to be served or not, but they'll have the, the retreat and uh, then they'll decide from there. Uh, they'll lay out some priorities of their own. One of their priorities is going to be the tax cuts again this year. They're going to want to see the continuation of, property tax cuts and they're probably going to be able to do that because of the increased property valuations coming from the new industries that are located uh, are being located in the county that's another story there uh at the workshop last week between uh, uh, most of the city council and a few of the county commissioners uh, they were told uh, uh, that the county is, is beginning to run out of locations for new industry. Uh, there are only two or three more lots that are available out at the uh, um, Enterprise Park uh, just off of Highway 1 and Cullen Road. And then there are just some other scattered spots around the county now where some of those um, other lots could go. There's um, possibly one or maybe two lots near where the Barat Forge uh, plant is going to go, where the new, uh, uh, we still don't know the name of the company, but it's going under uh, um, another name that's going to be providing building construction materials, uh, project frame. Uh, that's going to be where Lee Iron and Metal, I think, was uh, formerly occupied uh, a space out on Cullen Road, maybe some space there, but, but some of that soil is is uh, has been called uh, unsuitable, I think, for uh, for building on. It's not not uh, um, you know poisonous or anything like that. You know that EPA would be concerned with, just not suitable for building. So um, so that's going to be a big issue because you know, if you, if you don't have land to bring in new industry and all of a sudden your your economic development engine grinds to a halt so we'll see what happens with that during the coming year um and of course this is an election year and uh we're we're in a holding pattern right now because the state supreme court put a stop to everything until all the lawsuits regarding the redistricting issues and the drawing of the congressional maps and um, even some of the state maps and con conceivably even some of the county commission maps can be litigated in court. That all has to be done by today. That's uh, as we record this, this is January the 11th. Those cases have to be resolved by today. Uh, and then after that, uh, uh, then of course, there'll be the process of appeals that will go on. They'll go to the state Supreme Court, but I, I expect that we'll be uh, back into a uh, reopening of the filing for uh, office sometime later this month and the deadline for uh, uh, setting up those uh, primary dates uh, may actually have to be pushed back a little farther maybe than May but right now they're, they're set for early May and we're just going to have to watch and see what happens. Some of our folks you know that uh, um, uh, Chad Post has decided that he's not going to run for re-election this time um, uh, now we're going to be watching with great interest uh, who's going to be running and who's not going to be running this year. We're, we're of course, going to keep 
our folks updated daily on the process of that uh, as we go through the, the filing period and, and then uh, as the campaign kind of gets underway in full earnest sometime in, you know, just after that. But, you know, there's no end of political season, Gordon. You know, I mean, it just goes and goes. It's like the, the ever-ready bunny, you know, it just keeps on going and going and going. And for some kind of political junkie like me, I mean, you know, this is just the best of all worlds. Right. I don't care how crazy you get. Yeah, we had um, we had uh, kept a running list of the filings, but you know, sort of stopped that with um, with the order to suspend filing because of these lawsuits. But um, we expect a ruling today from the uh, from the three judge panel up there in Wake County and. I don't think that filing will reopen whichever way this this court decides until after it's it's widely expected to be appealed by whoever loses. Right, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. It'll go all the way to Supreme Court probably and the state Supreme Court is uh, held by Democrats by four to three margin. So read into that what you will. Uh, but this court uh, by and large has been uh, Bipartisan, their decisions haven't been handed down on a four to three basis by and large. So we'll see what happens. Um, strange things happen in politics, guys, and oh, yeah. uh, uh, strange things are going to happen again. There was there was big news in Sanford this week when uh, on January 5th, I think it was, um, I was driving home from Apex and, you know, when you're, we were listening to the radio and when your radio cuts out and all of a sudden that, that, uh, that blare comes on that, you know, it's either going to be an Amber alert or it's going to be a weather, um, a weather warning. And it was an Amber alert. And um, unfortunately it happens so often that you, you don't always pay attention to them, but like the third or fourth word um, in this Amber alert was Sanford police. And so it caught my attention and they said there was a missing three-year-old girl, but that's all it, that's all it said was a missing three-year-old girl. And so in the time it took for me to get um, from Apex to home, which was about 20 minutes, um, when I got home, I had learned that uh, it was a, a missing three-year-old Sanford girl who was abducted by her father or it was somebody with the same last name. And that's what we knew. Um, so we went ahead and posted the, the story thinking, you know, this, this is a big deal. Um, and any, any Amber Alert's a big deal, but when it's uh, in, in your city, you want to get that out there. Um, it wasn't 30, 40 minutes later that we learned that the mother of the, of the young girl was uh, found murdered. And so it took it from a, an Amber Alert story to a, um, to a much bigger, much more um, pressing story. Um getting the word out to, you know, in case anybody knew anything for one, but also uh, reporting on a, um, on a really unfortunate murder. We had heard um, Margaret Murchison at the local radio station here had, uh, had already reported a large police presence on Lee Avenue. And it uh, turns out that that's what this was for. Uh, the Amber Alert actually went out a couple of hours after the uh, police presence there, because I guess they had to get their ducks in a row and make sure that this girl was in fact missing. Um, so, so yeah, and then uh, it was um, later that night, um, the guy had, had traveled eight hours into Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and uh, was involved in an auto accident um, along the interstate there. 
And uh, when police in Tennessee ran the tags, uh, they found out that this was the car involved in the Amber Alert. And they um, searched the area and they found the guy in a motel, nearby motel. And uh, they found him holding the young girl in a stairwell. And uh, um, I believe uh, weapons were drawn and the guy relented, put the girl down and was arrested on site without any any uh, without any issue. Um, the news since then that we have not reported on was that there's been a, a delay in getting the girl back. But from what I understand, she did return home uh, to family either yesterday or today. and. Uh, um, and there's just there's so much more to this story, and it is going to lead to more reporting from us. Uh, we we are trying to get a hold of family members. We're trying to um, to find out more, and this will lead to um, to, to more stories. But uh, really unfortunate incident. Um, these this couple was not from this area. They were originally from uh, I believe the St. Louis, Missouri area. Um, had recently moved to North Carolina. Um, had very recently moved to Sanford, and um, and we're, we're still trying to get the timeline of all that. But uh, Sanford was the, the, you know, just happened to be the, the place where this happened. And going back in this guy's police records, it, we found, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a lengthier rap sheet than the average human. He had um, he'd been arrested for uh, larceny and a couple other things. But the one that sticks out was. Um, Moore County arrest earlier this or earlier in 2021, he was arrested for strangulation and domestic abuse and child abuse. So, uh, you know, um, an unfortunate end to all of it. But we're uh, we're we're going to try to connect the dots and and see what led to all this. And uh, well, yeah, that's a tough story. And um, it just these these stories always bring me back to my time at the Herald because that was my beat. And, you know, you, you report enough of those. Uh, I don't want to say you get desensitized to them, but you have to treat them with some detachment, but they are, uh, they're, they're tough to watch happen. They're tough to look into. Yeah. They're tough to learn about. You're detached on the initial reporting because you're trying to get the story out. You're trying to get the facts. You're, you're more worried about talking to police officers and, and witnesses and things like that, then you are actually taking the time to sit and think about what all happened. So that's how you become desensitized to it. It's when you do the follow-ups or when you go to learn more that you, yeah. that it, that it becomes really tough. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget Gordon um, back uh, during our short time at the Herald, the Shania, um, what was her last name? Davis. Yeah. I'm sorry. That is, didn't remember that off the top of my head, Shania Davis case where she was a five-year-old girl who was uh, abducted and we thought abducted and was uh, found, um, her body was found, unfortunately, <laughs> in, uh, in Lee County. She was uh, taken from Fayetteville, but then um, that became a national story, but uh, what, and, and, you know, we all did all the work we could do to, uh, to report on it. It was when you later learn the details that it becomes a shocking story when you learn that the the mother had actually uh, kind of sold her out for prostitution and and uh, and it was a um, and a a night that went horribly wrong for whoever took her and ended up murdering her and uh, um, 
but no, that that's the one that will that will always stick with me because once you start learning about the details of it, it's uh, it's just terrible. 